what a lot of the um, neuroscientific research and the physiological research is showing us is that we know that intri- like intrinsically as a human being, right, our body responds to other people in the environment. Our brain responds to other people in the environment. So um, we, we kind of have within us already the power and the importance of compassion. Part of what we need is to be reminded of it's, um, it's, you know, it's social good and it's business good and it's impact on the other kinds of outcomes that we care about. Welcome to the Flywheel Podcast. This show is for entrepreneurs and creative free thinkers. Each week, we share ideas to help you build a better business that's more focused on building a life rather than just making money. I'm Victor Jimenez. To stay up to date on the latest shows, visit theflywheelpodcast.com where you can get notes on all the shows and sign up to receive updates. Welcome back to another edition of the Flywheel Podcast. Today, we're talking about compassion. And we're especially talking about compassion in the context of work and business and how that fits into humanity. As you know, you know, compassion is like the glue that sticks us together as as humanity. And for some reason, we have taken that away in the workplace. Oh, it's just business, we say, uh, and things like that. So I brought on and one of the top experts on compassion research. Her name is Monica Whirling. She is the founder and CEO of Enliven Work, an innovation organization that teaches businesses and others how to tap into courageous thinking, compassionate leadership, and the curiosity to bring their best work to life. She's a research scientist at Stanford University Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education, and Executive Director of Compassion Lab, the world's leading research collaboratory focused on compassion at work. Monica holds a lectureship at the Ross School of Business, University of Michigan, and is an affiliate faculty at the Center for Positive Organizations. This is a great conversation. I think you're going to enjoy it. As always, I really do love to hear from you. So please reach out and send an email, reach out on Twitter or Facebook. Tell me what you think. Let's have a discussion around this topic. Monica, welcome to the Flywheel Podcast. Thank you so much for the invitation. I thought I'd sort of kick off our conversation about compassion uh, with something uh, that came to mind from, from the Godfather movie of all places. And there's a quote in there. It's, it's um, I can't remember the character's name. Anyway, he says, uh, don't take it personally. This is just business. Yes. And not that the, the Godfather's uh, compassionate or was it Don Corleone was not very compassionate, but uh, he was just making a statement like, you know, th- you know, the separation of business. In th- that case, they were 
killing somebody, you know, probably. Um, but that that mentality sort of carries over into our current business environment of, you know, we have this separation of ourselves from business and work. And I'd like to hear your, your take on that. Well, that has been a very traditional view of business for a long time now, that you should keep your personal life out of it, that emotions don't have any place in the business world, that it's a cold, rational, calculated game. And the more cold, rational and calculated you could be, the easier it is to get ahead. So that's a very... Um, what we might call that an old school, uh, very traditional view of winning in business. And it Mm -hmm. still has resonance in all kinds of businesses and all kinds of organizations. So vestiges of that way of thinking are very much with us in our contemporary work life, Mm -hmm. but they're also outdated. So my research and many other people's research shows that In the world of entrepreneurship, for instance, that I know you're very interested in and your listeners are engaged in, Mm -hmm. the most successful entrepreneurs are not necessarily the ones who are cold, hard, calculating and out for winning themselves at all costs. The most successful entrepreneurs are the ones who have vision and ambition and the capacity to build good relationships and to adjust on the fly as they go and to help other people collaborate with them in a high quality way. So um, it's not that ambition and rationality have no place in business. Of course, we don't want to throw out Mm -hmm. the baby with the bathwater, but The personal side of our being, the capacity for relationships and deep connections and um, building collaborations that last over a long time are really essential business qualities that get erased in the godfather view of things. Yeah, yeah. And it's also not that I really want to go down the road of politics, but, you know, this idea of of winning and and. Oh, the, you know, it's still the same thing. This is just politics. You know, don't take it personally. Uh, and it really is personal. You know, you know, how much of our waking lives uh, do we spend in work or in our business? Uh, a tremendous part. And I always say, you know, wouldn't it be nice to do that? Spend that with people that you enjoy and having valuable uh, interactions instead of just trying to get over on people. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, one good movie turn deserves another. So your quote from The Godfather makes me think of the um, Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks movie, You've Got Mail. Oh, sure. Because Tom Hanks uses that line to Meg Ryan about her business. And at the end of the movie, she comes back to him and she says, what do you mean it's not personal? Why isn't it personal? Shouldn't everything in life that's meaningful be personal? Excellent. I love that. Thank you you for that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that's um, another, another movie to add to your repertoire. Yeah, it's been a while since I watched that one, but now you just you just brought it back. That was a great movie. I, so I read your new book, uh, 
I'm gonna I'm gonna mess up the name. The Awakening Compassionate <laughs> at work. You got it. Yeah. <laughs> and there was a word that that came out uh, quite a few times in the book that sort of struck me. Uh, of course, the word compassion, and I would like to dig on that just a little bit. But the the other word that I'm thinking of is is suffering. Yes. Uh, which I don't know for everybody else, but for me, you know, it's it's that that word in particular is, is uncomfortable. Yes. Um, so could you just give us a qu- your quick definition of compassion and what you've come up with, and then let's talk about suffering a little bit. Sure. Okay. My definition of compassion is a social scientific definition that we've developed over the course of the past 20 years of doing research and reading, of course, across a vast array of disciplines to pull together a comprehensive definition. It's We define compassion as a four-part human experience that always unfolds in relation to suffering. And the four parts are noticing that suffering is present uh, in your world, in your organization, in your social system or community. So noticing. Mm -hmm. Um, Interpreting that suffering as something that's relevant to you and worth your time and attention to address. And interpreting the other person as worthy of compassion. That interpretation feeds into a feeling which we call empathic concern. You can think of that as concern for the well-being of the other person. Mm -hmm. And that feeling leads to motivation and action. So action is the fourth part of our definition, action to address or alleviate suffering. So there's four parts, if you're following along in that definition, that um, are pretty comprehensive of a human experience. There's attention, interpretation mm-hmm. or meaning making, fe- feeling or emotion, and action. Hmm. Interesting. And so a suffering that we understand it, you know, suffering when you know comes to mind is, you know, maybe my personal suffering, oh, I hit my toe. Or, oh, uh, I had a death in the family, or, you know, maybe I have some some health thing, things like that. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so where, where, how does suffering, can you explain that and why I read it so many times in your book? <laughs> yeah. So um, first of all, let me say that you read it so many times in the book because, there's a strong intellectual tradition and um, to be true to the concept of compassion, we are, all, we are always in the land of suffering when we talk about compassion because we distinguish compassion from other related positive states or positive feelings like happiness or gratitude mm-hmm. because in part compassion is the response to human suffering. So when you say compassion, you're already invoking the word suffering, even if you haven't named it yet. Mm. So that's one reason why you saw it so often in the book. A second um, comment in response to your question is that, of course, we could um, make a continuum of, of, 
you know, painful events that go from kind of minor annoyances or minor irritations Mm -hmm. to um, difficult, stressful things that many of us cope with, but we do it all the time in our day-to-day life to really dramatic, traumatic events or crises. And um, we don't, um, we in in give talking and giving examples, we try to give examples that fall along that continuum because it's often easiest for people to see and understand compassion in in relationship to dramatic, traumatic or crisis events. Um, compassion's obviously relevant there, and there's obviously suffering present, mm-hmm. uh, but. It's also true that the um, difficulties and strains and stressors that are more a part of everyday life create um, a kind of suffering that is on a different spectrum or on a different part of this continuum. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when you stub your toe and you have a little bit of physical pain, but it passes quickly and it was just a kind of mild irritation, that may not rise to the level of something that we want to call suffering. So there is a possible to make, you know, kind of a distinction. Um, Some people make a distinction between the word pain and the word suffering, where suffering has more intensity and is of longer duration. That's a fuzzy distinction, but, you know, in the land of philosophy, those kinds of distinctions are available. So are you saying that, so if if we... So for us to understand suffering, it might be something more of an, a, a deeper emotional thing than, than you know, the, the immediate pain of smashing my toe, for instance. Yes. Uh, it's so, not necessarily an emotional thing. I mean, it is. Yes. <laughs> I guess it is. Uh, um, there's a philosopher and physician named Eric Cassell who did a lot of work to try to address the difference between pain and suffering from a philosophical point of view and to create a picture of how he thought the medical world ought to respond to people's suffering. And that may be different than how they respond to people's pain. He um, gave a definition of suffering that I think is really useful for us to think about in today's world which is that suffering is a kind of experience that challenges our sense of existence or our sense of integrity. So, you know, the death of a loved one can often become a deep form of suffering, partly because of the loss that it entails immediately, but partly because of a longer term set of challenges to our own sense of immortality or our own coming to grips with whatever um, is yet to be worked out in our own existence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's uh, very true. I lost both of my parents in the last few years, and uh, it challenged a, a lot of things for me personally. And when you think about workplaces or you think about... Uh, small organizations or startup mm-hmm. organizations, when when people care deeply about their work and then they make a significant error that puts their business at risk or they care deeply about the person they work for and the person they work for behaves callously toward them or says something that's really hurtful, 
that can be a source of pain in the in the moment that it happens mm-hmm. and then it can pass quickly or sometimes that can become a real source of suffering right if that relationship is damaged beyond repair or if it challenges you to come to grips with other relationship challenges that you've had in your life mm-hmm. or if you're you believe deeply in the mission of your business and suddenly your business is at risk. Uh, your livelihood is threatened, but also your purpose in the for being in the world is threatened. Um, that's, I think, a form of suffering in the world of business that is not that's different from but related to that definition that comes out of medicine. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's something that's really common especially in smaller, you know, startups and, you know, entrepreneurs that where there's a single founder, especially that your identity gets so closely tied into what the business is and and where the business, you know, what it's all about and its mission. And when that, when things don't go as planned, which is often, uh, that that is a direct hit on you know sort of the the uh the emotional well-being of the entrepreneur yes um, and and there's there's their whole their whole sense of being really um, yeah that's right that's right so that's a form of suffering mm-hmm. that uh i think is often culturally overlooked it's a little bit invisible to people that aren't in the world of entrepreneurship and if you are in the world of entrepreneurship it's easy to become a little bit callous to it because it's like hey this is what you signed up for um so it's a space where we could use more compassion okay so the you mentioned the four keys uh were what is it? Noticing, interpreting, feeling, and I wrote it down. Acting. acting. Um, how about? Would it be all right if we unpack those a little bit? Like, sure. Uh, you know, no- noticing. I I think inherently, uh, especially today, I talk about this a lot. It seems like every episode I do, I talk about noticing and noticing in the way of uh, we're so distracted. Uh, yes, and that's it's very right. difficult. Uh, we're being trained, it seems like, uh, by our, de- you know, our devices and, and everything to, to be distracted and not really notice anything. Uh, yes. and especially people that we're with, how many times do we sit across the table? Uh, and sometimes it happens at home, but at, at work, at, at a coffee shop where everybody is just not paying attention, uh, to each other. I'll tell you a short little story is, um, uh, I had somebody reach out to me and he said, Hey, you know, I'd love to sit down and have a cup of coffee. So I said, sure. We met at the local coffee shop and he wanted to ask, uh, he was asking me some things about business. He, and the whole time we were talking, he was checking his phone, his text. I don't know what he mm-hmm. was looking at on mm-hmm. his phone, sort of at the bottom of the table. It was obvious. It was just the two of us. And it wasn't like he was really hiding, but in between, right. you know, he would say, well, what about this? And I'd be talking and he's just, he would just hold the, the phone down there. So that, yeah. uh, 
I guess what I want to ask, where I want to go go to, is we don't listen, and some of us maybe at least are aware enough to pay attention that we're not listening sometimes. But how do we get somebody else to listen mm-hmm. and and pay attention? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, first, let me say in response to your story that it sounds like a painful experience. Uh, It's a painful experience to sit with someone when you've been asked to be there and you've given up your time to have a social engagement with them and to have a conversation to feel that the other person is inattentive and Mm -hmm. unable to really connect with you and definitely not fully present for the conversation that they asked to have. Mm -hmm. So, One way that I think we all can work toward building more compassion into our working lives is to recognize those moments of painful interactions, Uh, whether or not you want to say that rises to the level of suffering for that one interaction, I don't know, Mm -hmm. but at a cultural level, when, when this is becoming the norm, and everyone is starting to feel as if no one is fully connected to them and no one is capable of being fully present to them and they're speaking and no one is hearing, Um, that creates a level of societal suffering that I think you're pointing to Mm -hmm. that's crucial for us to address because the more that people feel disregarded and unheard and treated with a lack of respect from the other people around them who matter, um, the more we erode the social fabric that actually um, makes society function. Mm-hmm. So um, your story to me is it's in microcosm, a picture of what is happening at a cultural level. That's a big part of noticing the pain and the suffering that we're creating for each other and for ourselves, and then um, interpreting that that is something important for us to pay attention to and to act on and to tap into our feeling of concern for ourselves and for each other Mm -hmm. so that we could remedy it and and behave differently in the future. So um, how, right? How we do that? How do we build interactions that are more present, more mindful, more respectful Mm -hmm. um, is a really important question. And uh, how do we help other people listen to us better, I think is another important question. So in the first case, I do think one of the reasons that mindfulness has become so popular and that people are writing and reading about it and studying it so much now is partly as a remedy to the kind of epidemic that you're describing of distraction and the inability to be present. So we can all um, learn to recognize inside ourselves the signals that 
we aren't paying full attention, right? We know what it feels like to pay full attention Mm -hmm. to something and to be engaged in it. And we know what it feels like to have half of our mind on something else. And we can, we can, um, do our own inner work to have more integrity around being fully present, um, with things when we need to be. And, um, we can ourselves change our behaviors around how we use technology and how we allow technology to distract us from the human beings in our lives. So I think there's a there's a kind of an inner work and a self-discipline and a self-management piece of this distraction story that helps build compassion into the workplace and into our social interactions when we manage ourselves better. The other thing is, how do you help other people listen? And that's where I think um, that that uh, having a mindset of being um, gentle and experimental, but not kind of letting these moments go by without addressing them, can be really interesting. So. Um, yeah, what I do don't you, know what if do you this, mean by that. Yeah. Well, I, I I think that we should, when we notice that suffering is being created in the world around us, if it's at all possible for us to address it, I think we should think about having responsibility to address it. So I don't know if this would have worked in the situation with your friend because there's a lot of contextual things that of you course. have to take into account, but. When I when I teach with my students, for instance, in university, um, I I will teach them um, near to the beginning of the class. Um, I'll just give them a brief summary of a study that was done recently that um, showed two people having a conversation over a small coffee table, like you described. And in one case, the people just had a conversation and there was nothing on the table. And in the other case, they had a conversation, but the phones were sitting on the table. They weren't using the phones. The phones were just sitting on the table. And, um, this is a laboratory study, so they're controlling for all those contextual effects, mm-hmm. right? And um, when the participants in the study rated the quality of their conversation, how much they liked each other, and how willing they would be to have a conversation again with this person in the future, all of the scores were lower for the pairs that had the conversation while the phone was sitting on the table. Interesting. And nothing else was different about the setup of the conversation. Right? So one uh, kind of hypothesis of that study is that even the mere presence of the technological device is a symbol that I'm not fully with you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And so we are so we, we've become so entrained now because of the omnipresence of smartphones and how much we use them and how many of these experiences we've had where somebody isn't present with us, that even if the phone is sitting on the table, we feel less connected. Um, we feel less like we want to keep talking to that person or like we want to continue to interact with them in the future. And so. Um, after I introduce that study to my students and I help them understand that this technology has such important ramifications for our social connections, um, I just 
invite them to understand that every time they're using their phone under the table and they think nobody's looking, they're actually creating pain, right? They're actually creating disconnection in the world and, and that it matters. And so, you know, I don't ever then usually have to do anything else the rest of the semester to ask them to put their technology away, right? That, the just taking it seriously that it's a form of pain and that it creates pain for other people is a prompt for them to kind of do their own self-management. Um, so with your friend, you know, you might have said, you know, I know that we said we would meet at this time, but maybe, maybe, maybe something else is really going on that you should attend to. Like maybe we should meet up later. Yeah. Right, like you could call attention in a gentle way to like you're not here in this conversation as much as I wish you were, and maybe the right thing to do is just to let you go take care of whatever you need to take care of. Yeah, that that context, okay, in the coffee situation is one thing, but when it's a employer and an employee, that same conversation happens. I mean, I think less there's sort of a, a culture around the employees probably not going to sit there on their phone while the while the boss is talking to them, but the boss might. Uh, and I think setting that example is is really powerful. Yeah. So leaders as examples of this are really powerful and it's more pervasive than we would wish. So in fact, I have a um, sad but true story of a group I was working with where the group really felt that the leader wasn't paying attention and wasn't hearing them and wasn't listening to them. And the leader was concerned about this. So she invited us, a group of researchers, to do some focus groups with her team and to really surface the issues and learn about what was going on and bring the issues to her so that she could pay attention to them which we did, and then we organized a debriefing session where she would be there with her team and they would have a chance to really have a good conversation around what had come up. And she was there, she was physically present for that conversation, which she had orchestrated and we had put a lot of time into planning for. And she spent the entire time checking her device. And so even though she had said, I care and I want to hear you and I'm sorry you think I'm not here with you, her actions were saying the opposite. And there was was nothing we could do in the room as facilitators other than on the break encourage her to put the device away and point out to her that she was modeling exactly the opposite of what she was saying that she wanted. Yeah, this is the case of the, the actions really do speak louder than words. You know, a lot of businesses will have like, uh, we believe in this or we say that. And if the leaders of, of the business are not showcasing that, it just doesn't, it just doesn't work. You know, nobody else in that, in that, uh, I don't know if that was a classroom or whatever the organization was, uh, nobody yeah, no, else below her. A, right, right. No, this was a, and you know, an organization doing real work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're doing real work. Um, <laughs> um, okay. So yeah, the um, the in our in our book we talk about um, that difference that you just named as the difference between 
um, espoused values, right? The, the ones that you hang on the wall and the ones that are lived out every day. And um, when people think, so there's a big emphasis, as you know, nowadays on organizational culture. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people think when they talk about organizational culture, they think about the values, which is an important part of organizational culture. And they think about change as putting a new set of values on the wall. Right. Um, but we, so, you know, we talk about how culture and values are, A, they're only one piece of what makes an organization compassionate. And B, they have to be, to have a true compassionate culture, you have to look at what's lived out in people's daily experience. Right. That that's that's what matters. And that's what yeah. if you watch uh, children, uh, I can I can tell tell you a, a, a very quick little story. So uh, my son, when he was I don't remember, he was very young. We're sitting at the dinner table and uh, he dropped something. And when he dropped it, he goes, said like some extremely loud curse words and and I immediately blew up and I said where did you learn hear that kind of language <laughs> or or no you know he goes oh I learned that from I learned that from you or if no I I heard that from daddy I said where did you hear that kind of language and I I shrunk really small when he said that and I was like <laughs> oh <laughs> end of conversation uh you know, so it didn't help it. You know, if I say, no matter what I say, if, oh, we don't use that kind of language around here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He, like, oh, yeah, you're brutal right. Honesty you probably of did. Right? You probably did hear that from me. And it wasn't very good that I did it either. Right. Right. <laughs> um, so, um, noticing, interpreting, what someone is, what's, what we notice. I think that's what you mean, right? Yeah. We're interpreting what we notice. Yeah. That, that's uh, easier to say than, than do to interpret something correctly. Um, Especially sometimes when you, you may not, uh, I'm thinking of one-to-one interactions uh, Mm -hmm. because that's what comes to mind instantly, but it could be in a, on a larger scale. We, well, maybe I'm going to let you talk, uh, unpack that a little bit, because I'm going to go and influence what, what you're going to say. And I, I just really <laughs> like to hear what you're going to say. Sure. Well, let's go back and forth on this one, because it is uh, hugely important in terms of creating more compassion in your work environment and in terms of building your own capacity to engage more compassionately with the people around you. So um, the kinds of interpretations, there are four kinds of interpretations that we talk about that help people engage in more empathy and compassion. Um, The first one is that, um, I'll say it, this says people are generally good. Right. Mm -hmm. People do bad things all the time. There's difficulty in the world. But if I can interpret that you messed up right now, but you're generally a good person, Mm -hmm. that interpretation helps me care about your well-being. 
and then reach out to help you or reach out to express support or reach out to, um, you know, uh, just to offer, you know, a solidarity or something. Mm-hmm. So a second um, kind of interpretation that really matters in the workplace in terms of cultivating compassion is that people are generally pretty capable in trying to do a good job. They don't always do it. They can fall really far short sometimes. But if I hold the general interpretation that the people around me are capable and they're trying to do a good job, then when something goes wrong, when somebody falls short, when somebody misses a deadline, uh, it's much easier for me to say, hey, it's not okay that we missed this deadline. What's happening? Is something going on? Did something get in the way that I should know about? Right? It's not that you don't care about the missed deadline or the mistake, but your interpretation is that something else must be going on here because people are generally capable and trying to do a good job. So it helps you notice more about what's in the background or, you know, what's going on in people's lives that's keeping them from doing their best work or uh, what's going on in the political environment of the organization that's stopping somebody from being as successful as they could be. Um, A third interpretation that really builds compassion, and that's a really hard one sometimes, is that other people are worthy of my compassion. And it sounds easy to say it when I say it like that. You're like, yeah, no, of course, people are worthy of compassion. But what if it's a person who just insulted you? What if it is a person who just did something really objectionable? What if it is a client that just made you furious? What if it's a vendor that just radically failed to deliver on something that you're going to be left holding the bag? Uh, what if it is a person who is so different from you that you can barely even see them as a fellow human being, right? right. Much right. less see them as a fellow human being who is worthy of my compassion. Uh, and so that one gets hard, right? It, it, yeah. All kinds of things in work make it hard for us to remember that person is really worthy of my compassion. I am so furious right now that <laughs> yeah. I just want to scream. And that person is worthy of my compassion. So that that's a tough one. Uh, and work, all kinds of work settings or work situations make it harder. And then the fourth interpretation that can really stop compassion in its tracks um, is... I don't have the capacity to deal with this or I don't have the resources yes, to deal yes, with this, absolutely. right? And so yeah. that it, that kind of interpretation is also really necessary to get through all those four steps that we talked about. Because if I see that you're really, really struggling and you're about to kind of miss a big deliverable and I say to myself, I do not have time to help. I don't want to get involved. Like I want to stay right. away, as far away from that as I can. Then obviously no compassion follows. Right. right. That's just a, a <laughs> ro- major wall goes up. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So those are, when I talk in general about interpretations that facilitate or block compassion, those are four, that, four of the biggest ones. Hmm. It's interesting. Uh, that's one of the scenarios that 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 you just mentioned of uh, an employee uh, messing something up, 
so I, I had somebody that does does work for me and and he messed something up and he is doesn't mess things up generally. And uh, I called him up and I said, well, you know, is everything all right? And he says, oh, I want you to to uh, dock my pay, you know, because I, I don't deserve to, to get paid. I, I screwed up. And I'm like, that's OK. You know, it was it was OK. There is no way I'm going to dock your pay. Um, and we had a we actually did have that exact conversation. What's going on? And he actually has some tremendous things in his in his life going on right now, which caused yeah. him to miss it. And yeah, and uh, those conversations. Unfortunately, I, maybe now they're happening more. Those conver- and I'm not suggesting that I'm I'm any great saint here, but I, I think in the workplace they are happening a little more. Uh, but often they don't happen. It's like, well, you better not let it happen again. Don't miss right. that, don't miss that deadline again. That's usually right. what happens. Right. So we want those conversations to happen more. I think that's a part of what we mean when we yeah. use the phrase awakening compassion at work, right? And it can happen more in two ways. So um, one way that I really um, encourage people to think about a lot is that most workplaces have pretty strong norms about keeping your suffering out of the work, Yeah. right? So um, one thing that might have been going on with your employee, I don't know the situation, obviously, but um, that person may have been trying so hard not to miss the deliverable or not to make the mistake and to keep their suffering like from interfering with their work. And they just misjudged, right? They misjudge mm-hmm. how much they're they're not on the top of their game. And so they miss. But they have the opportunity, right? People have the opportunity to bring this conversation up in ways that prevent it prevent their suffering from creating surprises or mistakes or things that other people in work have to deal with. And so one thing we want managers and supervisors and leaders to become more accustomed to is the the person who comes to you with the heads up about, look, I'm doing my best on this and there's something big going on that's getting in my way and I want you to know that that's happening. Um, that's simultaneously a conversation about managing a risk in your workplace and a conversation about having compassion for what that person is going through. And the two aren't mutually exclusive, right? So we all as employees can be get more brave and more skilled about bringing attention to our suffering when it's relevant to our work. And that's one way that these conversations can happen more. And then, of course, we can also try to build skill and empathy and understanding for the colleagues and the leaders and the managers who are presented with suffering and then have to respond to it. One of the difficult situations in that is when I bring that, I'm, I'm concerned when I go and bring that up, that I'm having this problem and I might miss it, then the response that I may get back is, well, you better not miss it. 
you know, if you want a job tomorrow or if you want to keep this contract going or whatever that is, right. Um, you better not miss it and you figure it out. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I think that is a very real fear and Mm -hmm. it is the reason why people try to keep these things out of their work conversations Mm -hmm. and, I don't want to diminish that fear or make it seem like it's not plausible because I think that is oftentimes um, the response that you get. And um, that's where both sides of the relationship really matter in cultivating more compassion, right? Like, so we think of these as Sometimes we, when we're training people, we train these as moves. We call them move, compassion moves. So one compassion move is to try to alert people to suffering that's happening that might affect work in some way. Mm-hmm. And another compassion move is to hear and respond to that with empathy for what the person's going through and creativity or resourcefulness around how to buffer them, right? So so how to keep their difficulty from affecting everybody else. Right. I mean, it sounds like a a little bit, you're describing the context of an organization where everybody can be trained in in a culture of this. But the difficulty with entrepreneurs is often, especially in small you're working with a wide band of, of yeah. people that that aren't trained in this, and you might only be working with them for a day or or you know a short period of time. And that's that's where that that's a, a big challenge. I see is, is because where both sides aren't trained uh, to work on this, and and maybe they're not even on the same page. They they're like, well, I, you know, that's a bunch of crap. This, yeah. This, this, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I think that um, I think that's right, and I think that uh, um, so sometimes when I think of training or education around <clears throat> this topic of compassion and work, I think of it as um, restoring or reminding people of something that's actually pretty much a part of the human condition, Um, but that gets dampened out of us by certain kinds Mm -hmm. of experiences in life and certain kinds of contexts, right? So when, if we're in, you know, a hyper-competitive entrepreneurial space and we're really struggling to carve out our competitive niche, Mm -hmm. Compassion is not going to be top of mind necessarily, right? right? Um, And then when you get reminded of how one move of compassion toward your key supplier when they really need it Mm -hmm. can actually make that supplier your like partner for life. Because when people get treated in the moments of real need, with real compassion, it creates a kind of commitment and a social bond that is very durable. Mm. Uh, so, and we know like, and what, what a lot of the, um, 
neuroscientific research and the physiological research is showing us is that we know that intri- like intrinsically as a human being, right, our body responds to other people in the environment. Our brain responds to other people in the environment. So um, we, we kind of have within us already the power and the importance of compassion. Right. Part of what we need is to be reminded of it's, um, it's, you know, it's social good and it's business good and it's impact on the other kinds of outcomes that we care about because um, business and organizations can, can drive that out of our mind. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, uh, I don't know if other cultures, I always talk about, you know, sort of American Western culture. I don't know if other cultures are similar um, to ours that, but it's just not, hasn't been okay for, for the last however many hundred years. It hasn't been okay. Uh, I think generally tiny little businesses like the, you know, you think back, uh, 50, 60 years ago, the tiny mom and pop businesses, I think they, they did have a little more compassion possibly, uh, somehow big business took that out. Yeah. I think there are a lot of cultural variations in the general story that we're telling here, but, um, anytime that, um, you, so there's a distinction that social psychologists make, Um, that I think is useful when you're thinking about the cross-cultural work world. Um, One one side of the distinction is called an ego system, E-G-O, like just Mm -hmm. like you would imagine, an ego system, where individual outcomes matter a lot. And in order to get ahead, it really matters that you stand out as an individual. So you have to compete against other people in a way that makes you look good and makes them look bad in order to get ahead. And that's a common way that we construe work in the United States, right? That's a it's kind of to stand out in a big corporate world, you have to have the image and you have to look good and you have to get ahead of other people. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the alternative to that, the social psychologists call an ecosystem model, right? So where we're actually all interconnected. Um, our outcomes depend on other people's outcomes. The better that we collaborate together, the better we're both going to do in the long run in terms of winning resources and carving out our niche and making sure that we can be successful in our niche Mm -hmm. and um, recognizing that interdependence and building up those relationships and having compassionate interpersonal goals so that I take care of you when you're struggling, you take care of me when I'm struggling, we recognize the reciprocity there and we value it Um, is a, it's a completely viable but different way of envisioning what's happening in an organization than the ego system model. And I think different cultures um, kind of tend toward more of one model of business than the other, but you can find both models everywhere you go. It's a basic human condition that we're talking about. So I'm trying to imagine it's easier for me to imagine smaller organizations, but how this might work as a entire, as a culture in a business, would we then 
have like as one idea, would we then possibly have uh, times where we're, we're actually working on the, the bonding, personal bonding within a group, uh, mm-hmm. maybe some sort of team, not, I, I don't like the word m- meeting, uh, but, but group conversations. Is, would that be one way of how this might look like and how we might? Because I, I know that if we just start talking about it, and this is my idea, and I'm the boss, everybody's like, oh, gosh, here goes another another idea. But if we start demonstrating it through some sort of facilitated uh, meeting or, or group conversations, would that be one way to, uh, to begin the process of building a con- compassionate organization? Yes, definitely. I think making the compassion and the interdependence between people more open and more discussable, more a part of the everyday work environment is an important um, way to begin. Another way that we talk about to begin to shift an organization's environment is to think about the quality of connections between people. So um, high quality connections between people tend to facilitate compassion because we know each other better. We can pick up on smaller signals. It's What's a safer high quality, to talk. What do you mean by high quality connection? A high quality connection is a, an interpersonal um, moment between people that is characterized by um, mutuality, by positive regard, and by a sense of vitality. That's the technical definition. But uh, you could imagine it in layperson's terms like, every time I stop by your desk, I just feel so good. Right. Um, so when, when you have more of those kinds of connections in your organization, you're going to facilitate more compassion. And so anything you can do that helps grow those kinds of connections is helpful. So sometimes it's helping people know each other outside of work a little bit better. So they have a chance to um, have more connection time when they're not in the thick of things at work. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes it's just giving a little bit of time at the beginning of a gathering or the beginning of a work meeting where people have a chance to share a little bit about themselves or to talk about something that helps other people know them better. So over time, people get to know each other in a richer way. So um, that's another Mm -hmm. um, important place to start when you're thinking about cultivating compassion is to think about all the different things you can do that help people have higher quality connections with each other. Excellent. Where, where does it, where do we go wrong with this? So, so I'm, we're working on this in our business, building more compassion in our business. And where do we, what, what's going to be our, our biggest mistake and our biggest challenges? Well, um, one challenge we already talked about, so we don't have to belabor the point, but it is the action speak louder than words challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Leaders matter a lot for building compassionate workplaces and especially by how they themselves act. So leaders don't have to be perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but leaders that are willing to listen 
to acknowledge other people's suffering, to create flexibility when they can, um, to invite other people to be resourceful and to respond to difficult events, mm-hmm. um, and who create the space for people to actually talk about and engage in um, compassionate responses when something bad happens, or they're really important, right? So in, in small business, I think all the time, the business owner feels like they have such responsibility on their shoulders. And if right. something goes wrong, they feel so alone in bearing that burden. The employees or the family members or whoever it is that's participating in that small business know that something's wrong. And they're are hungry for a space where they can come together and support each other. So um, being yeah. afraid of the pain, being afraid of the suffering and letting the fear of pain and suffering stop you as a leader from bringing people together or stop you from sharing information. Um, that's a one big obstacle where, where we can get off track. And another place where I think a lot of organizations can fall down is um, in the space of the values that we talked about. This yeah. is just a different form of action speak louder than words, right? Absolutely. Where, um, I can say that compassion matters in this business and I can write it on a poster with my other values and hang it on my wall. And then the first time that somebody comes to me and says, you know, when you chewed me out in the meeting in front of everybody else, it really hurt. And I, I, I'm really um, struggling to get over this and I don't know how to make sense of it. Mm-hmm. And I respond as the leader with like, you got to get a thicker skin, get over it, get back out there. You're <laughs> right. not selling enough, right? right. <laughs> um, that's, that is going to undermine anything that's written on any poster anywhere. Um, mm-hmm. And the so the values in action in an organization matter so much, uh, matter way more than what's printed on the wall. And um, the, the thing that um, business owners, I think, can also understand is that they don't have to have all the answers and they don't have to know how to fix it. So this is where all of us, actually all human beings, business owners included, fall down on this one, which is that we think that something might be wrong with our neighbor, right, or with somebody who sits at the desk next to us, but we don't think that we know how to respond or we're afraid that we'll say the wrong thing. Um, And so we don't reach out because we're so afraid that we won't know how to fix it for them. And in fact... Most of the time, um, you can't fix it. But you're right. You can't fix it, right? right? But that's not what counts. What counts is that you said, it seems like you're kind of down. Is there anything I could do? Or I've noticed that you've been really quiet lately and I just brought you a flower to cheer you up. Or, you know, any any small gesture of being human with another person is actually the compassion move that counts. And then maybe something bigger comes of it or maybe not. But I've heard many, many, many times from employees that it was just the colleague who 
stopped by and said, hang in there. Yeah. That made a huge difference to them. It's that listening piece of it that's that's extremely powerful. And I think ultimately we all just want to be heard and have someone pay attention to us ultimately. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think that's that's uh, the you know basis and uh, yeah. basis of compassion, I guess, is is that tapping into that that ultimate human uh, need for connection. That's right. That's right. When you look at the etymology of the word, compassion one of the etymologies is to suffer with interesting right? calm calm is with passio is suffering and um to so compassion isn't fixing it for the other person it is just being with them we can end on that note that is fantastic well i really enjoyed this conversation can you just tell everybody uh where they can uh, learn a little bit more about you and about your book and and that sort of thing. Yes, absolutely. So our book again is entitled Awakening Compassion at Work. It's co-authored myself and Jane Dutton. It should be available in bookstores anywhere that you like to shop for books and it is available for order on Amazon. And we, um, Jane and I are also co-founders of a research collaboration that we call the Compassion Lab. It's a group of people that are interested in studying compassion and organizations. And we have a website, CompassionLab.com, with a lot of original research papers available for download. And there's a chapter of our book available on the web at the title of the book, awakeningcompassionatwork.com. So you can go there to download a chapter. And we're running right now um, something really fun for us in relation to launching the book. It's called 100 Days of Awakening Compassion. And each day for the next 100 days, we are sharing a little technique or reflection that we write about in the book in a small um, shareable uh, format. So if you like bite-sized formats, you can go to awakeningcompassionatwork.com and you can see all the 100 days of compassion and sign up to get them mailed to you if you like. That sounds really fun and I will be signing up. Uh, for everybody listening, I will put all the links that were mentioned there on the in the show notes so you can just go there instead of trying to type them in while you're listening. Thank you so much, Monica. This was fantastic. Thank you for the invitation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us for another edition of the Flywheel Podcast. Do me a favor. Head over to theflywheelpodcast.com where you can receive all the show notes. There'll be any links that we talked about in this episode or any other. And you can also sign up to receive updates on upcoming shows. When you sign up, you're also going to get access to my I have a little mini email course called Torque that helps you build better relationships in your business. So thanks for listening.